Alrighty, beautiful people. Welcome back to the show. He's a first time guest and I'm super, super, super blessed to have him on. Um, I've wanted to chat to him for a bit of time now. His name is Michael Blythe. How are you, Michael? You well? I'm very well, thanks. And I hope you are as well. Yeah, thank you, sir. And thank you for taking the time. I wondered, could you just give us, I guess, a brief intro for those who might be uh, unaware of you? Could you just give us an intro, I guess, of who you are and what you do? Sure. Well, uh, I'm uh, I'm an economist and uh, uh, I guess compared to the uh, the sorts of uh, different careers, if you like, or different uh, companies people work for, my uh, my career has really been quite uh, quite boring. Uh, now, after I uh, finished my uh, economics degree, I was lucky to get a job at the uh, Reserve Bank of Australia. And as an economist, fantastic place because you're working with um, some of the smartest people in the country. You learn far more about economics and how the economy works uh, there than you do uh, Know, sitting in a university lecturer, so fantastic grounding from from that perspective. Mm. Uh, and uh, it was so good, I was there for 13 years. And uh, uh, then an offer came up uh, from the uh, the Commonwealth Bank. Uh, they were looking for an economist, and uh, you know I joined and um, uh, became their uh, chief economist, uh, which is um, uh, where I was for about um, uh, 20, uh, 24 years. So a uh, long time uh, talking about GDP and the CPI and uh, what interest rates are doing uh, going to do next, that, that kind of thing. But it mm. has been a very interesting time when you think of all the things that have happened over the last uh, 30 plus years with the, uh, the economy. Since then, I've just been doing a few uh, kind of minor consulting roles um, uh, just to, uh, to keep my hand in, uh, keep the mind active. And, uh, you know, of course, a bit of cash flow is uh, always yeah. a good thing to have as well. Yeah, 100%. Um, with the, something I noticed, like I've only been in finance for two or three years at this point, and I notice during times where the RBA is raising the official cash rate each month, like sort of the cycle we've been we've sort of been in since I think May of 2022, the type of um, negative commentary you you tend to see in the media is quite prominent, and it seems to be all that the, the a lot of the financial uh, papers might be covering. Has that always sort of been the case? Like speaking from your experience, you've been you were working there for a while back in the day as well. Was that always something that they sort of do, or is that maybe a new phenomenon? No, it's a it's a big problem of perception for people like the, yeah. the Reserve Bank. I mean, in the end, they are doing what they think is best for the economy, and the best contribution they can make to the economy is keeping inflation low. Uh, and and stable. That's the way you maximise employment, and that's what gets missing in the the commentary. I uh, I think uh, you now it's very easy to uh, double the unemployment rate in Australia. You have a recession, it'll double. Uh, you know within a, a six month um, period, basically. So you want to avoid that. And as I say, the best way to avoid that is to kind of keep those uh, fluctuations in the economy pretty tightly controlled. Mm. And uh, Reserve Bank, in the end, uh, they've really only got one policy instrument, and that is interest rates. Yeah. Of course, uh, people with a mortgage uh, do feel the uh, the pain there. But when you look at the numbers, uh, it's something like about a third of the population have a mortgage. So they're the ones that certainly feel the heat when when rates um, uh, go up. Uh, but the other two thirds don't. So they're either not touched or, they're, in fact, they're savers uh, and they actually benefit uh, when when interest rates um, rise. Uh, so uh, you've only got to think of the last uh, 12, 18 months where term deposit rates have gone from you know less than half a percent up to you know four to five percent now to see how uh, there is another side to this uh, this particular story. And yeah. I can tell you, the Reserve Bank gets as many letters about interest rates being too low from those savers uh, as they do about the uh, you know the borrowers uh, who are obviously uh, feeling yeah. the the heat from higher rates. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it 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 seems like. 
during uh i guess during the the really low interest rate period during the pandemic there was definitely articles in the abc and such of you know people in their older years or retirement years who were not super happy that their savings accounts weren't making much of an interest but at the same time you were seeing this huge property boom where a lot of people's property prices were just going up and up because uh, among other things, people were able to borrow more money than maybe they could have during a, a higher rate cycle, right? Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's right. It's always easy to pick you know, one bit of the the overall story and concentrate on that. Uh, or, you know, newspapers and so on, they love to play off the winners versus the the losers uh, type angle because that's, yeah. uh, that's what makes the exciting headlines and so on. Uh, but you've got to look at the uh, the whole uh, the whole picture. And, uh, uh, I mean, even, even now, I mean, it's... You know, we we'll all agree that higher rates are bad for uh, for borrowers. But you look at the uh, the kind of profit announcements the the banks been putting out over the last six months or so. Uh, I mean, what stands out to to me is how many people uh, are not really affected because they're so far ahead in their their loan repayments. Uh, you know, a very high proportion of people are uh, uh, more than two years ahead in their loan repayments. So you know, this rate rise cycle shouldn't really hurt them uh, too too much at all. They've done it in a very simple way. You know, when interest rates were coming down a few years ago, a lot of people just kept their home loan payments constant. And, of course, they just accelerated the rate that they were paying off uh, those uh, those loans. So, uh, uh, you know, you can find ways to uh, to deal with these issues. And uh, uh, even the more recent uh, uh, borrowers who haven't had time to, to do that, uh, what are we seeing right now? Well, refinancing of home loans is running at a, a record high. Uh, and uh, you know a lot of that is being done at rates that are better than the the kind of headline rates you see again advertised in the in the newspapers. So people have found a way to kind of offset uh, some of that uh, that pain. And uh, you know the other story that comes to mind here, of course, is uh, you know go back six months ago and it was all about this mortgage cliff that we were about to uh, to go over and what a disaster that was going to be for uh, for the banks, for individuals, yeah. for the economy, and so on. Well, again, on the you know the bank statements um, and their profit announcements recently, I mean, we're more than halfway down that mortgage cliff, uh, and uh, you know, so far so good. Yeah. Fingers crossed, maybe. But um, you know, it doesn't look like we're even dealing with that kind of extreme uh, event. Yeah, yeah, I'm still I'm still at a point where I'm probably a little prone to being sucked into some of the headlines about things like the mortgage cliff or people's cost of livings becoming really un- uh, untenable. But then where I live in Dubbo, there's a couple of shopping centers around me. And if I go to the shopping center from a Friday all the way to a Sunday Arvo, select shops might look like they're struggling, but for the most part, people are still lining up to pay $12 for a boost juice. Do you know what I mean? Like people are still spending a lot of money at the Donut King or the Baker's Delight or the grocery store. So I try to, it's it's very hard for me and I'm sure it's hard for a lot of people to sort of pass what your reading is going on with what you're actually seeing to see where that like middle ground is. Yeah, it's it's hard to, it's hard to judge. Yeah, I mean, we can't deny it. There is, uh, you know, there is a subset of the population that is doing it really tough uh, at the, uh, at the moment, uh, but uh, the, they're not the dominant part. And in the end, uh, you know, policymakers, the RBA, they're, they're kind of dealing with the average household. That's the only you know, kind of metric that they can look at. They can't set policy for one group over the other. It's got to be the mm. average. It's got to be uh, uh, what does it mean for the long term, not just for the uh, the next uh, next month as well. It might be a bit inside of baseball, but some of the talk that's that's been going on recently with ways of addressing inflation is almost that 
it has to go hand in hand with how government roll out policy, whether it's raising taxes, reducing taxes on certain things. And I just wondered, like, from your point of view, what what would you think you'd have to you'd want to see from the government that that would, I guess, have a greater impact on reducing inflation if the RBA only really have one thing they can do to sort of address inflation the way they're doing it what part would the government have to play in figuring out ways that they could help bring down inflation yeah well, that's always been uh, you know the uh, the difficult question really you know yeah. fiscal policy government policy it should be able to do something uh, but you don't get many chances to change um, uh, policy you know we have the big budget in may uh, every year and for sure you could probably do little bits and pieces in between mm. uh, uh, times but you know interest rates is easy uh, reserve bank meets once every month you can change them or not as the the case may be so i suppose what you've really got to look at is um, uh, beyond uh, the uh, the kind of consumer side so we know one of the other big inflation pressures in the economy at the moment is uh, coming through construction activity, um, uh, you know, particularly uh, infrastructure spending. Uh, we're trying to do a lot of very worthwhile projects, but we're trying to do them all at once. Uh, and, uh, you know, the impact from there on uh, uh, construction material prices, construction wages and so on is something that's actually feeding into the uh, uh, the, uh, the broader inflation story. Uh, I'm a little bit torn on this one uh, because I think infrastructure is a great idea and the more we do, the, uh, um, uh, the better. But it is something clearly feeding into the... Uh, um, uh, construction side, uh, to the inflation side of the story at the uh, at the moment. Beyond that, uh, to you just kind of change the question slightly. You know, we talk about the cost of living crisis and uh, the squeeze on uh, household uh, incomes in in particular, and that's absolutely true. You know, of course, because wages are growing at a slower rate than inflation, so real wages are um, are falling. Interest payments have uh, gone up; they're taking more of that income. Uh, but what people are missing, and uh, to be honest, I was surprised myself when I uh, noticed this, that uh, the other big drag on household disposable income at the moment is income tax. Mm. It's uh, growing very quickly. And that's partly because you know, there are more people with jobs and wages have gone up a little bit. Uh, but income tax per person is growing at the fastest rate in 10 years. So part of that squeeze on households at the moment is coming from the government. So they could you know, presumably do something on the, the tax front as well that may not help so much on inflation, uh, but it would take some of that pressure off the, uh, the cost of living story that's really kind of dominant for households uh, right uh, right now. Mm. So, you know, like interest rates, you've got to kind of look at both sides of the story here and uh, the government can provide some of the solution, but it also appears they're part of the problem <laughs> at, the, uh, at the moment. Just to expand on that for people listening, is the way that income taxes have been rising, is that because more people are going up into that bracket where like more people are getting more income so they move into that higher bracket or have the government changed the tax brackets? Like how does that work? Yeah, uh, look, it's um, uh, a little bit of uh, little bit of both, I suppose. The okay. I mean, wages are growing. Uh, and so if you're close to the top of one income tax band, it doesn't take too much to kind of push you into the um, uh, the next one. But I think the biggest driver at the moment is uh, employment. You know, well, the unemployment was supposed to be going up, uh, but it isn't. And that's because employment's kept growing. So we've got more taxpayers. So we've got a lot okay. more taxpayers. They're earning a little bit more. And, you know, government revenue is uh, one of the the beneficiaries uh, of uh, of that. Uh we do have some uh, tax cuts coming up in the uh, the middle of twenty twenty four. The the stage three uh, tax cuts, uh, as they're uh, as they're called, and there, you know, there's a lot of debate about those at the moment. Should they be cancelled? 
should the money be used for something else uh, and the uh, and the like but if if taxes are part of the problem then uh, you know i think the uh, people who want to get rid of these tax cuts or use the money somewhere else need to kind of explain how they're going to help uh, households so uh, uh, but yeah uh, the uh, uh, once again, when you start digging behind the the surface, there's a lot of different uh, kind of pushes and pulls uh, here. Mm. Um, switching switching to, I guess, the career side of it. Speaking on yourself, like we talked about it before we did this podcast. Like looking at your LinkedIn page is pretty awesome. Like you've done some pretty cool stuff <laughs> across across. You've sort of been had your fingers in a different bunch of different pies, and I just wondered, like looking back at your career, what moments do you look back on the most favorably, and 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 the moments that feel the most pivotal or the most proud for you looking back on your career so far that you sort of, I don't know, bring a smile to your face considering the different range of experiences you've had in the industry? Uh, well, the, the um, I suppose there's a couple of things there. Uh, uh, and I uh, you know, want to put in kind of context, uh, I came to realise after a while that a lot of my job was really selling insurance, if I could put it um, uh, that way. So, uh, you know, as chief economist, I would go and speak to a whole range of uh, the Commonwealth Bank's uh, clients. So, you know, the top end of town, the superannuation funds and so on. Now, these are smart people. They're not waiting for someone like me to turn up and tell them what to think. But what they want to know is what am I thinking about that might be a risk or issue that they haven't thought about or what's my interpretation of this particular issue that might be playing out at the the, the moment. So it was was kind of getting plugged in at that uh, that level and... uh, uh, hopefully providing some kind of positive input was one of the things I used to enjoy. And, uh, uh, you know, we go further across the spectrum and uh, a lot of corporates uh, speak to uh, to them. And, uh, you know, of course, they, they don't maintain their own teams of economists and forecasters, so they really do want a lot of input into uh, you know, where interest rates are going, where's the currency going, because mm. big business decisions hang off that. And, uh, you know, of course, you're... Um, uh, you know, giving your uh, your best uh, best view at the uh, the time, but again, it was kind of insurance for them that they've got somebody else to blame if it uh, all goes uh, wrong, I suppose. But in terms of the, uh, you know, one of the uh, the highlights as such, uh, dates back a while now, but um, back in two thousand and eight, uh, you know, the global financial crisis was really going, and there was a bit of a competition amongst economists to see come up with the most negative uh, view on how it was all going to uh, to play out. Uh, Know, plenty of people forecasting ten percent drops in GDP and all that kind of uh, kind of thing, and uh, I kind of sat back for a, a few weeks and I went right through it all, and uh, I just thought I just can't see this this happening. Sure, it's a you know big financial shock, and they're always a bit unpredictable, but uh, uh, you know I came out at the time and said there's going to be no recession. Pretty much everybody laughed at me, including uh, my boss. Uh, at the uh, at the time, but uh, as things turn out, uh, much to my relief, uh, that was the the call. Sure, we had some uh, pretty weak uh, economic growth there uh, for um, uh, for a while, uh, but it was nothing like a recession. Uh, uh, you know, the unemployment rate didn't triple or whatever as people were predicting at the time, and uh, so uh, yeah, it's, that's the one that brings a smile to my face, I suppose, and it, mm. it does highlight every big negative shock uh, that um, uh, that we get. The immediate reaction is to think up the worst possible scenario, uh, and most of the time it doesn't it doesn't happen. So that's mm. it's one of the big lessons I think of the last um, uh, you know thirty forty years uh, I've been in the uh, the industry. I'm definitely not the first person to think this, but do you think when when you you look through I guess the the day to day articles that are telling you how the world's gonna you know the world's gonna end and the financial crisis is gonna hit or the mortgage cliff or whatever. Do you think the editors of these newspapers are saying, hey, write this, 
write that or do you think they just have journalists on staff that they know have these sorts of opinions to begin with do you know what i mean like is it the chicken or the egg uh, i think it's like a self-reinforcing circle in a way and uh uh, the uh, everybody in the industry knows that what sells newspapers uh, uh, is a negative headline. That's yeah. what people want to read uh, read about uh, because they're immediately worried about what it might mean for them and and so on. So I think there is a bit of an inbuilt um, tendency to uh, you know kind of write things up uh, in a, a negative way. Now it's not true of all the journalists and it's not true of all the editors, but uh, now, there have been the rare occasion where somebody's basically written a story and they want a quote to fit in with what they've written. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's basically on the lines of, can you give me a quote that fits in with this particular uh, view? And if you can't, I'll just go and find somebody you can. So you know, the, uh, okay. that doesn't happen very often, I should say. You know, most journalists, yeah. um, you know, they're, they're trying to do the uh, the right thing and yeah. uh, and so on. But, uh, you know, without a doubt, there is a, a bias there, I think, to, uh, you know, favour the uh, the negatives over the, um, yeah. uh, the positives. I guess looking back on 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 your life and the lessons you've learned, and and this question can sort of be what you want to make of it, whether you talk on career stuff or investing stuff or just life in general. If you could go back to a twenty five year old version of yourself, and assuming that he listens to what you have to say, what what are what advice do you think you would give that version of you? Well, you know, when I look back uh, over the uh, the years, the one big lesson, if you're thinking about it from the investment side, really has been buy and hold. Mm. Uh, you know, trying to trade in and out. Uh, yeah, maybe you get the timing right and you, you make uh, make some money. Uh, but uh, you know, property, I guess, is a classic uh, example uh, here. Where uh, uh, you know, I bought my first place in 1988, uh, and I've still got it. Uh, and uh, yes, it is worth <laughs> you know a lot more than uh, when I bought it then. And I haven't done really anything. And to be honest, it's not so much an investment strategy; it's kind of inertia. But looking back, uh, that's the uh, results. And uh, I mean, I'll give you another classic example of a, a, a kind of a mistake here. Uh, uh, I'd been uh, working for the Commonwealth Bank for probably about 12 months. Uh, and uh, was at that point, they, uh, the government decided they were going to sell these, the other half of the CBA that they still owned. And so um, CBA um, put out a deal for the staff where you could buy uh, uh, 500 shares at, a, I think it was like a 10% discount. Mm. I thought, oh, I'm working working for this organisation. I probably should have some skin in the game and buy some of these uh, these uh, these shares. Looked at the price, CBA share price at the time was about $16. And I thought, well, that's a bit rich. So I only bought 400 of the 500 I could have bought. Uh, and, of course, uh, buy and hold again. Well, those $16 shares are now worth, uh, I think, a bit over $100. Yeah. Um, so, uh, uh, as I say, it's not so much uh, timing into the market. It's time in the market uh, that yeah. uh, kicks up. The one other lesson that I wish I had uh, paid more attention to was superannuation. Um, typical 25-year-old like me uh, doesn't really think about that much at all because it's so far yeah. in the uh, the future. Uh, but you get to the point where it suddenly becomes uh, very important and all those sorts of things you could have been doing over the uh, previous couple of decades you haven't done and uh, you know, it does impact on uh, your retirement savings and uh, what you can do in that uh, retirement. So uh, focusing on some of those things earlier uh, I think is a pretty important uh, lesson and uh, you know, not a bad uh, investment strategy as well. Yeah, okay. I wanted to try and spend as much time as we could before we got out of here on di- Downsizer because that's sort of how I heard about you in the beginning. I think it was a, a Fin Review article I read of that you were in and talking about Downsizer. So I just wondered, like, give us, I guess, the cliffs notes of it. Like, what what's the work you're doing there? And what is, uh, obviously, there's a big 
a big thing going on with uh, an undersupply of housing for both people trying to buy to live in or just people trying to get into the rental market. And for the first time in 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 my lifetime that I've been reading about it, it feels like it's happening everywhere. It's not unique to Sydney or Melbourne like maybe when I was growing up where that's where it all, it just felt like renting in Sydney was crazy. You'd have to be in a share house with eight people to to even get by. But now it feels like it's sort of happening everywhere. And obviously Downsider, Downsizer has an aim of trying to contribute to, to fixing that problem. So I just wondered, like, give us the cliff notes. What, what's going on at, at Downsizer? Sure. Look, um, a few months ago, the government put out this thing called the Intergenerational Report, uh, and it basically looked at uh, all the uh, risks and problems the economy was going to face over the next 30 to 40 years. 298 pages. I could summarise it down for you to one sentence, and that is that we're all getting older. Mm. Uh, you know, it shouldn't be a surprise, but uh, it uh, it is. It's happening right now. It's not something that's over the um, horizon. But one of the outcomes of that uh, is uh, that uh, the houses people live in are getting older as uh, as well. Uh, as two parts of that story, uh, because again, you know, people have been in these houses for a long time. It's been a great way to generate wealth. Uh, but equally, those big houses are no longer really fit for uh, for purpose. Uh, uh, you know, they come with rising maintenance costs. Uh, they've got big gardens normally that uh, you know become harder and harder to um, uh, to um, to look after, uh, and uh, uh, the number of people in those dwellings um, uh, declines. You know, just through that aging uh, process, and uh, uh, you know, plays into this housing crisis story in particular. Based on the last census, uh, you can work out there are about. Uh, 13 million spare bedrooms in Australia. Mm. So it's not so much we've got a housing um, shortage, it's more we've got an excess of bedrooms. Uh, they're just in the um, uh, the wrong uh, the wrong place. Uh, well, how you can, can you resolve that? Um, uh, well, you can encourage these older households who are living in the wrong type of combination to move to, uh, uh, you know, something more uh, appropriate um, uh, for them, and then you come across this gap in the market. So most, a lot of these older households, uh, you know, they are asset rich because that house is worth a fortune, uh, but they're um, they're cash poor. So they may want to um, to move, but it's hard to find that kind of ten percent um, uh, deposit uh, that will secure you you into that uh, new development that's going to take two years to uh, to build. So the uh, the kind of innovative financing idea that Downsizer came up uh, with uh, is. Uh, uh, via uh, using a deposit bond. So uh, uh, essentially. Uh, uh, you would pay downsizer a fee, which is much less than the uh, the ten percent uh, deposit, uh, and uh, then the deposit bond then covers the ten uh, percent deposit to the um, uh, developer. Mm. Uh, so you don't need to uh, find the money until uh, you actually sell your dwelling to move into the uh, the new one. So it gets you over that um, uh, that gap without having to sell your house now to try and pay that ten percent, which means you're then paying rent for the next couple of years. And uh, even if you've got enough in savings, uh, if you uh, take that 10% out of your savings, uh, well, you're, you're losing, uh, you know, a lot of um, the interest income that you relied to live on during that mm. uh, two-year period as uh, as well. So it's, a, uh, you know, a pretty cheap and effective way, I think, for uh, potential downsizers to fill in uh, that, um, um, that, uh, that gap. And, of course, uh, there are other benefits here that are um, not fully uh, appreciated, I think, is, and uh, that is... Uh, when you sell your big house uh, and uh, buy the you know typically smaller and uh, and cheaper one, you're actually freeing up some equity, uh, which you can then um, use to generate income, which again mm. obviously very uh, uh, very useful. And uh, 
you know, you know, while I tend to be critical of the government on these sorts of things, they have done you know, one very useful thing, and uh, that is um, they've uh, created this downsizer contribution scheme into, into superannuation. And we tend to call it uh, superannuation's greatest secret because not many people seem to know about it. But effectively, when you downsize, uh, you can put uh, $300,000 as an individual or $600,000 as a couple into superannuation uh, in a way that doesn't affect any of your other kind of superannuation uh, uh, calculations. So it helps preserve um, uh, wealth and, uh, of course, it generates income. And so if you took full advantage of that $600,000 into uh, into super, it would generate a bit over $40,000 worth of extra income for you uh, mm. uh, every year. I say it's a secret because this scheme has been around since uh, 2018. Uh, and over that time, less than 60,000 people have actually taken it up. So there's some very powerful incentives there, but just nobody seems to um, uh, to know uh, to know about them. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you'd love to. It's a pretty good. Um, so if if you wanted to get into an industry that wasn't going anywhere, you'd get into funeral homes, or you'd get into a uh, superannuation companies. I feel like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It feels like a, a, a big factor that could play a role, especially given the stats that if there's that many empty rooms in a house. Um, and I wondered, like, I don't know if this is something that your your uh, work as an economist could speak to, but I think about it where a few of my friends recently had kids and had to look at moving out of smaller townhouses or units in inner city Melbourne where I used to live to then opt to move out into the outer suburbs where they could afford to get something bigger because there was nothing close to the city that would fit their needs anymore. Uh, but then there's flow-on effects from that because now you've got much longer commute times much more money spent on fuel and maintenance of your vehicle. And I just wondered, like, is there something to that that is uh, it almost because you have to move further away from where you work if you work in the city, that can almost handicap your ability to move upwards economically later on down the line because your costs have all gone up. Uh, at a time when you're also sort of doing that family formation stage. I hear the words upward mobility thrown around. I don't know if that's actually what it means, but I just wondered, is that something you know much about? Because I'm still trying to get my head around it. Yeah, I think mean, there's no doubt at all that, uh, you know, it's income determines how kind of mobile uh, you uh, you are, and it works okay. um, both ways, as you say, depending on uh, uh, where uh, where you live and the time and, uh, you know, cost of getting to work and uh, getting back again uh, is a big part of um um, I don't know people's budgets. Uh, you know, so we look at uh, car ownership. Uh, it's it's highest uh, kind of west of the uh, the main the main cities because uh, that's where uh, you know the public transport's the the worst and where uh, everybody needs a car to get to work or yeah. um, shopping or whatever it may may be. And you know that's uh, after the house. Your car is probably your biggest uh, biggest cost when you uh, think about it. Just not buying it, but uh, running it and uh, and so on. Uh, so again, there's a couple of things here. Uh, uh, you know, downsizing helps, I guess, in the in the sense that uh, you're freeing up those bigger homes that you know that group you're talking about uh, want. Uh, but part of the reason people don't downsize is they they want to stay where they are, and mm. that's uh, you know that's that's fair enough. But they can't find uh, the the type of dwelling they're looking for where they live. So one of the things you've got to get right here is all those kind of government and zoning regulations that uh, determine what you can build. So you've got to buy, build the right stuff. Uh, that uh, you know allows um, downsizers to free up these big houses that uh, other uh, other people want. 
also comes back to that, that comment I made about infrastructure uh, earlier uh, earlier on. Uh, get the infrastructure right and the distance doesn't matter so mm. um, so much. You know, you build a high-speed rail line, you know, you, you, you allow people to access the cheaper land, the cheaper properties that are further out from the uh, uh, the centre of the city, but you also allow them to, uh, uh, you know, get into work in a, a reasonable uh, time frame as, um, uh, as well. And it's one of the reasons I think we... Even though it's contributing to inflation, we need to kind of push on with this infrastructure uh, push because at least a lot of it's going into that kind of transport infrastructure that we probably should have built 50 years ago, yeah. to, to be honest. But, uh, you know, at least we're moving in the right uh, direction on that uh, that front. Yeah. So there are solutions to these um, these uh, these problems that mean, you know, distance shouldn't be uh, uh, as big an issue as it is uh, right, uh, right now. But it's just going to take time, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I don't... Uh... I don't, I would never, I'm I'm happy to sit here and make critique of government, never want to be in government. Absolutely. <laughs> Opposition I, is a nice place to be. Yeah, it's way more fun. I um <laughs> I just wondered, like, before we get out of here, do you want to just let people know, like, if there's any way they can sort of follow any of your work, if you put anything out, any social media or anything like that, where people can, you know, stay uh, stay up to date with what you're up to. Uh, otherwise, you know, we'll, we'll make a move and get out of here. Sure, we'll okay. Uh, I'm a bit of a novice when it comes to social media, I'm afraid, but um, most of uh, what I do uh, publish appears on uh, LinkedIn. Okay. Uh, so you can certainly um, uh, find it um, uh, there. Uh, if you're interested in the downsizing story, well, uh, uh, everything uh, that I publish uh, for uh, for them appears on their website, um, downsizer.com. So you can uh, uh, get all the information there, particularly, uh, you know, the superannuation story, which I think, uh, mm. as I say, it's a bit of a secret, but there's a lot of benefits for for those who are thinking about downsizing in that uh, that particular secret, uh, if they want to look look further at uh, at that, yeah. Plus, that's a great scheme because it's something I hear a lot from financial planners is how they might meet up with a couple in their fifties approaching retirement who have just realised their super balance isn't worth what it they probably hoped it would be and they're sort of on the back end where they're sort of looking for what solutions can help them and and that's a perfect solution being able to make this bulk payment into your superannuation that is going to get a little bit of compounding interest before you before you retire and and seize it right that's a great it's a great idea yeah. it's a shame they haven't been able to spread the word about that more than than what they have yes yes i agree it's certainly worth a uh, worth a look and uh uh, if you're asset rich and cash poor, you know downsizing is uh, one of the ways you can solve that problem for yourself, and uh, it helps the broadest uh, economy story by or housing story by um, freeing up that housing stock uh, that's uh, kind of too big for uh, uh, the people who are living there um, uh, currently. So uh, yeah. you know it's uh, got some nice flow-on effects for the the bigger picture story as well. Yeah, exactly. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you taking the time out, letting me pick your brain for this, and uh, thanks again. We'll have to do it again. Yep, that was great. Thank you. Thank you, sir.